Listen to Mission Street. That was recorded in 2019, but lockdown notwithstanding, the mission has sounded like this for decades, as long as I've known it, and way before then. But how much longer, how many more mute and Bluetooth tech bros can fill the neighborhood before the entire jukebox just fades away? You can probably tell by now on the lip of this third episode from San Francisco's Mission District, that I feel hyper-protective of some of the past eras of the mission. Which is weird because, as I've said before, I'm more from West San Francisco and downtown, and the mission was never mine to protect in any decade. But it's almost like a genetic thing. Some people were born to rue and regret and get misty about change and get angry at hipsters without much self-awareness at all. That is me. Which is why, in this last episode from San Francisco that we recorded last year, I appreciated the equanimity of Chris Ying. He came up in one of the mission's most energetic eras, editing from McSweeney's, then working the grill in a genuine early food truck sensation called Mission Street Food. And even though there was so much to love about those days, he seems able to just let it all go and to think of the mission as it really is in nature. That is, a fertile valley that will always be home to some new growth. Don't fight it, just think fondly of those good old days and move on and let the next generation come up and have their moment. So, forget me and my nostalgias, just listen now to one of the sharpest, kindest people in food media. Chris Yang, everybody. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. All right, uh, what are we drinking up here? Uh, today I'm drinking a, the dregs of my morning coffee. Uh, they started to do that thing where they get like a weird shimmery oil on top, and I'm drinking Theraflu because I'm real sick. <laughs> This is great. You know, we have a lot of like alcohols with strong alcohol sometimes on this show, but I bet Theraflu has more power to fuck you up. I think that I think that that's true. Uh, this particular vintage is a few years old. Mm. I just found it uh, like sweaty on a top bathroom shelf, so it might be even extra potent. Right. I mean, does that mean I, we did this once with mushrooms, which is a bad idea? But it was like, oh, it's been there for a year. So we have to have like twice as much. Yeah. And it turns out it was not. It, it was the opposite, probably. Yeah. Like, I, th- I think that uh, the longer you've gone past the shelf life shouldn't be sort of like inversely proportional to how much you eat. So so you're not going to crush like three of those. Oh, I will. Stale I, mean, I, I don't know if we'll do it in the time that we're talking, but like this, <laughs> right. is, this is keeping me upright. Um, all right. Mission Street Food. Let's just start there. Like what was that project? How did that go? What did you learn? <laughs> Man, um, the mission is sort of the like ground zero for 
change in San Francisco, the change that everybody talks about when it comes to culture and food and who's living here and how much it costs to do it. Um, it's, <laughs> it's very complicated. I'll just start, like you said, with Mission Street Food, which I think we started in 2008, 2007 maybe. I remember it was before the elections, before Obama was elected, because the night of the first Mission Street Food, we were having a fundraiser for Obama at, at McSweeney's where I used to work. And it was the craziest idea. It was it was Anthony Mint, who's a line cook at a at, at Bar Tartine, also in the mission. And he decided, what if I just walked up to one of these Salvadoran Antojitos trucks and said, can I sublet the truck for one night a week for 300 bucks and just cook whatever I want in there? And, you know, the owners were like, sure, that's way more than we were going to make. Like, go ahead, do whatever you want to do. Um, and this seems completely, you know, commonplace now, but like this was a month or two before Roy Choi ever rolled the first Kogi truck out. This was a brand new idea, this idea that you could have a pop-up restaurant and he rolled it out right in the mission on, I think, 20th and Mission. And uh, we, like Eater was sort of just getting off the ground and Paolo Lucchesi was the was the editor there. So I sent him a quick email that was like, hey, this random line cook that you don't, you've never heard of yet, is doing this crazy thing. And it was the first we had really seen like the power of, of sort of like the internet and social media to drive like action. Um, and by the time Anthony opened the door of his food truck, there was like a line, like 35 people deep waiting for him. And he was like, holy shit, what am I going to do? That is, and that is some San Francisco stuff. People will line up. But San Franciscans love to line up. It's fucking crazy. Like they will line up for tartine. They will line up for ramen. They just like love standing in line. Uh, it makes no sense to me, but I mean, this is all to say this was, this was 2008. I was working at an independent publishing company for probably $32,000 a year. Um, in retrospect, having the best possible time of my life, <laughs> you know, you're just in your twenties and just why, around. why can you only recognize that later on ex post facto, man, that's a, that's a damn shame. But yes, I think that like, I think we're just trained to complain about whatever moment we're in. Uh, <laughs> and, and so for sure that that was like this when i think about the mission and i think about how it's changed i think man what an incredible time to be eating and living and working in the mission um this place that has always sort of like represented like where the dive bars are where like the taquerias are where like the good stuff is and to have this like very early mix of like punk rock spirit or whatever you want to call it that anthony had it's not even that it's just sort of like diy entrepreneurial communist Chinese spirit and he like just democratized fine dining and, and like fine dining cooking in this crazy way and and that was you know I think that a lot of people who are now in their 30s like me look back at that time and say like oh man the mission sucks now it's all gentrified it's all just like you know so quaffed and perfectly manicured stuff and like it'll never be the same as that but uh, I don't completely agree with that, but I do remember that being as like the, an amazing time to live there. Now, what are you from the Bay originally? I'm not. I'm from Southern California. I grew up. Uh, I, I've lived in in the Bay since 2000. I went to school at uh, Berkeley and um, have lived in San Francisco most of the time. Yeah, and mission. The mission has been kind of like your social cultural gastronomical yeah north star i'm trying to think of like what the the equivalents are i mean 
for somebody like me who moved from suburban, super white, super rich Orange County to the Bay Area at 18 and had never really had an experience in like living in a city or even visiting a city on my own, like that wasn't like in the back of my parents' minivan, you know, San Francisco was my first exposure and the mission was the cool place. Like that's where you go if you're cool. That's where you go to see shows. That's where you go to drink and dive bars. That's where you go to eat cheap food. Yeah, that, you know, that's... um. Well, I was going to high school here uh, on the west side. I went to Lowell High School, uh, which also meant that I would never in a million fucking years come down to the Mission District. Like in the 90s, it was just, it was just impossible. As a teenager, you would just get routed. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know? I think that, that is, I think that that's so interesting to know. And, and I think so few people who, and I've only recently come to this understanding of San Francisco, that the only constant about this city is that it's always changing. Mm-hmm. And before the mission was, you know, a predominantly Mexican Latino neighborhood, it was like an Irish Catholic neighborhood. And like this, this, this is what gives me some solace in, in thinking about San Francisco now is like, you can't just be so upset that it's changing, that it's not the San Francisco of your 20s, that it's not the mission that you remember, you know, opening Mission Street Food and, and cracking beers, you know, on the side of the street. Like you can't be so upset about it because you don't own (laughs) what the mission is. You don't own what San Francisco is supposed to be. Yes. I think it's like really annoyingly expensive to live here now. And I think that the people who are sort of new to the city are disengaged in a very profound way from, from what it means to live here and the people who live here. Sure. I don't like it, but to to say that like, Oh, the real San Francisco that I know of 15 years ago is gone is like just doing the same thing you know 15 years before that it was completely different you know like the san francisco you grew up with was yeah. probably completely different yeah i got on an i got on a tear actually we were publishing stuff at roads and kingdoms it was like straight up west san francisco 1990s nostalgia <laughs> pieces you know written by i think lincoln mitchell had written some and, and i was so fired up for this and i was like it was just kind of striking how like that specific version of that city was you know dear to us but also like totally irrelevant to the people who grew up you know so my father when he grew up here my grandfather you know like this city's gone through a lot of stuff and so when when we were all coming back from college and and all of you know all of my college buddies were like we're moving to the mission i was like are you fucking nuts you know like it just didn't make any sense to me and then like slowly you start to, and then you realize that it turned into this like 20 something playground, which it, it kind of still is in that way. And I guess that's driving, um, you know, there's some, I'm having some graphic foggily in my mind of like the life cycle from auto repair shop to dive bar to, you know, like, uh, you know, taqueria to fine dining, right? Like there's right. some kind of cycle that the mission's gone through. And that's why the food is so fucking great there, kind of on, on all levels, right? I mean, you can still eat cheaply and well, um, but then, you know, you have things like what Anthony was getting involved in, which is just bringing that extra level to it. Um, yeah, I, I wrote this I wrote this piece for, I was writing for the Chronicle for a minute, and there's this restaurant space on the corner of 18th and Guerrero in the, kind of in the thick of the mission. Um, across like the street from Tartine, right up the street from Delfina, like it's one of the most sort of <laughs> vibrant eating blocks in in San Francisco now. And even when Tartine moved in in like two thousand one, it was or two thousand eleven or whatever it was, uh, whatever I don't know, I'm getting that wrong. It was nothing. You wouldn't you wouldn't open a restaurant. You wouldn't open a bakery in the Mission. And this spot on the corner of like Eighteenth and Guerrero 
is has been empty forever and ever and ever or just always like a restaurant comes and fails and fails again and fails a third time but like eventually you know this japanese restaurant came in there took hold stuck it out for five or six years and like really did well and and you would you would assume that any restaurant on this block would do well and i started thinking about san francisco as this place of like constant change and what's sort of like underneath the surface of like whether it's an auto shop or a restaurant or whatever it is and you you think about the mission and the mission itself before there were buildings before there was anything there was this like very fertile piece of land there's not a lot of them in san francisco but like there was like a tidal push that came in here and it was like grassland and very and this is why like the mission was built there it was because this is where there was actually soil to grow things grass for cows to feed and i think about like, the mission now as like continuing to be in whatever shape it is it's like very vibrant and full of people and, and things happening and i think about it as like it's naturally a productive piece of land and like that's, that's a trip yeah that's quite an analogy but right <laughs> yeah shit I, uh, is still sprouting there i stopped i stopped writing for the chronicle because i was like man i'm really uh reaching for each one of these <laughs> these analogies but i i sort of believe it i sort of believe that there are like naturally abundant fertile pieces of land and like even if like we don't grow things there you know life still grows there but it's true, and the light in the mission. We were talking about that with Vedo Mahano. I spoke to. It's just talking about the light. Like it's, it is like it is. It's a very, it's a very strange thing because it's this valley that has its own natural properties. You know, they kind of, you know, it does. It's and it's a such such a colossal victim of its own success in that way too. It's like these are the nice things about the mission. Why people are coming in and making it very hard to stay. All right. So so the book comes out. How and I mean, you were just kind of hanging around with Anthony, and you were just kind of in the scene and enjoying the moment that I, he was uh, having. <laughs> Anthony and I, Anthony went to like elementary school, high school, all of that with uh, one of my very good friends who who first hired me at McSweeney's. This guy Eli Horowitz, who is now the creator of Homecoming on Amazon and all this stuff. So he he was my boss at McSweeney's, and he had known Anthony his whole life. So I knew Anthony sort of tangentially. But when I first started working at McSweeney's, I was also cooking at this restaurant in the Mission. And Anthony also had happened to start cooking at the same time as me at that restaurant. So we cooked together for like the week I was employed there uh, before it became unbearable. What were you cooking? Uh, I was working the grill station. Okay. Anthony was working, working the cold bar. We knew each other sort of a little bit, but we both kind of commiserated in how much we disliked this place. And then when he went to start Mission Street Food, it was like... He wanted some help with graphic design on the menu. He wanted to just talk through some of the, the food stuff he was going to do. Um, ultimately, I ended up jumping in the truck with him and cooking because I had kind of screwed him over by getting all these people to show up. So I cooked with him in this truck for the entire duration it was happening. Then we moved into this little Chinese restaurant that Anthony also just went door to door to find. And uh, over time, once like Mission Street Food kind of like the phenomenon was crazy. There just hundreds of people lined up every every week outside of this very dingy Chinese restaurant called Lung San. And this restaurant during the day or, or for like the entirety of its life was completely empty, save for maybe like one or two construction workers at lunch. Right. And it was just, you know, you're kind of like run of the mill utilitarian Chinese place that you would get like a huge pile of rice and or like chung fun and like whatever. Uh, and it would just fill you up and fuel you. So now it was just packed with hipsters and people like us who were just so grungy and gross and just looking for 
you know, this kind of like wild experience where you would eat food that seemed completely discordant with the environment. You walked through the kitchen to get to the bathroom. You know, the 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 owners, the Chinese owners were there the whole time. Uh, we shared the walk station. So there were two walks and we, we occupied one of them and we sat next to uh, their their sort of walk cook who you refer to as Shifu. Uh, and he would just sit, like, fall asleep on an upside down milk crate in the kitchen. When he woke up, he would, like, sort of startle himself awake and then step outside and smoke a cigarette, like that really, like, sickly sweet Chinese cigarettes. Come back inside, wait for the one order he was going to get in, like, seven hours while we were kind of, like, sweating out what the hell we were doing on the walk. In the, in the side office, like, the Chinese owner, Sue, she would just be watching crazy soap operas, like, on her laptop. Uh, and it was just, like, so naturally like authentically hilarious and fun and fun you know it was it was like the food was so inauthentic but the experience was so authentic is how we always talked about it yeah um and well and you're talking about groups that pass each other like ships in the night in this city right it's like and kind of having them it's like i i know exactly the guy you're talking about at the walk station because like you know they're I just grew up in this town like you just see them but you rarely are going to share a space with them in that way that's fascinating exactly and like that was that was the that was the best part I mean like I grew up like my parents wanted nothing wanted me to have nothing to do with like manual labor right like I grew up a cush life in Orange County and like only sort of like visually and nominally Chinese my like spoken Chinese is terrible but like Man, walking into like an actual a Chinese restaurant with with immigrants from you know Guangdong and like I actually don't speak the same language as them. They speak like some Mandarin, uh, but sort of like being thrown in with what what is essentially like my parents' generation of of immigrants. You know, first generation here trying to like make ends meet. Like I learned so much like about how to use a fucking walk, but also like man, how far you go you like you separate yourself from like where you come from right just like how weird one. that stuff felt to you which in you one, know. yeah in one generation right, and right. like i i for sure was like i had more in common with like the white hipsters in the dining room than i did with like the people in the back of the kitchen but like i tried so hard to be to feel like i was part of the kitchen world and like ultimately i didn't you know anthony's so good because he just like he is in there and he he like feels that kind of like DIY struggle like in his bones. Like I remember like the owner at, at the restaurant was such a badass. Like the the fuse box was not the the electrical system in that restaurant was not built to accommodate more than you know one person <laughs> eating at the restaurant. So we had like hundreds of people in there, and the fuse would blow out every time we had like our blender working at the same time as the stereo. And the fuse went out one time, and there, we ran out of extra fuses. So he just like. He's like, yeah, no problem. He like took a hacksaw and cut off a piece of like copper piping and just like jammed it into the fuse box. And I was like, this guy's the fucking best. <laughs> right. It's those little, uh, those are the life skills you lose in that second generation. For sure. Right? Like, I don't even know what a fuse is. <laughs> All right. So how long before you went from that to, I mean, how did it evolve, I guess, from there? I mean, I had never really mixed my cooking, which I had been doing since college with this publishing activity because I just sort, I sort of felt like food was super frivolous and pointless and, and kind of like very, I mean, it is, it but. is, it totally is. It totally is. <laughs> so um, we, we get to pretend that it's not. No, I think that like it's becoming less and less so, or, or, or 
I've started to see it less and less. So, and that was like the huge change for me was like, oh, you can talk about bigger issues with food as frivolous as it is, as, as like kind of uh, elitist as it is to talk about fine dining and wine pairings and all of that stuff. Like I, I sort of thought that food writing was restricted to that, was restricted to restaurant right. reviews and things. Um, but I met Dave Chang and I met Peter Mian and they were just putting out the Momofuku cookbook and I was working at McSweeney's. We were doing this big newspaper project. We were going to do, this was at the height of everybody saying newspapers are dead, print is dead. So um, Dave Eggers, who was my boss at the time, <laughs> was like, it's not dead. It's just nobody's trying to do anything with it. So let's make a 320 page newspaper and show everyone that like people will come out for this. People will, will get up for a 300 page newspaper that's all beautiful, beautifully designed and full of smart writing. So we were doing that. And they were doing a food section. I didn't want to have anything to do with the food section, but I sort of saw some pages on a desk one day out of the corner of my eye and, and like, you know, some uh, 19 year old kid was sort of like putting it together and he had like his feature article was like what to eat after like a tough rugby practice. And I was like, All right, I'm sorry, dude. Like I got to take over here. Why? Why haven't I read that article? I need that in my life. Yeah. I mean, that's a free one for anybody who uh, needs a little editorial guidance, but um I, I randomly got in touch with Dave and, and Peter, and they were sort of really generous with giving me material from the Momofuku cookbook. A few months later, they were doing the Mind of a Chef TV show and wanted to do a print component and called me up and said, you know, what do you think about doing this? And then the, the benefit of working for like a, a flailing publishing company in the mission, and just the mission, like that whole spirit in general, is that you really do live the whole, you really do live the mantra of like, I don't know how to make money and I don't really care because somehow $32,000 is enough and somehow I'm having a pretty good time just making shit and people are paying for it. I don't know where the money comes from or where it goes. And so when they called me, I said, yeah, sure, let's make a, a magazine. So we started Lucky Peach literally with some math on the back of a napkin. Like I know that's a, a hackneyed metaphor, but it was like literally that. And... uh and it came out, the number came out positive on the bottom of the uh of the It didn't napkin. even, it really didn't. Even. It was <laughs> it like, just, it's just, uh, uh, just a little bit of a loss. It was just like yeah. question mark, question mark, question mark. And uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that was an, all we needed for like an okay go. So yeah, so we started that magazine and then sort of my life became all about, went from like, I don't want to do any food writing to this is all I do is talk about food and travel and culture and things like that. And uh Stuck it out of the mission for a little while longer, but like that was right around the time that was 2011. I think that you, you could, if you wanted to, like start putting markers into like when the mission started going, undergoing its current transformations, probably around then. I remember back in the day, Stephen Elliott, who is now a disgraced author, uh, was you know like big in the mission writers scene, and he um, he do you know who he is? Uh, yeah, what the hell? What, he what wrote was like his... Happy Baby, and he uh, had like this real like S and M kind of what was his crime? vibe. <laughs> he he tried to like sue to find out who had because he ended up on that like terrible men in media list. Ah, uh, yes, okay. And he tried to like Freedom of Information Act it or some crazy yeah, shit. Yeah, he's like, gonna FOIA. Oh, yeah, yeah. He just he's like one of these dudes who like got their feet maybe if not hot water like warm water, uh-huh. and then decided like. Oh, fuck it. Like, I'm going alt-right. Like, screw it. <laughs> like, all in. I'm a men's you know, rights activist. Exactly. Now, so that's, that's yeah. Stephen. Uh, but he's, he was leading this big campaign back in those, like, late 2000s. 
that was like, they're going to open an American apparel in the mission. We need to protest this. There was like community meetings and like sit-ins and like people picketing. And I was like, fast forward 10 years, you would die to just see something with as much sort of like grit as an American apparel. In this <laughs> like that would be the least offensive thing. Yeah, it's all Louis Vuitton. Yeah, it's all Louis Vuitton. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a trip, right? And then like just figuring out when people decide like they're just going to put their make their stand against the you know the tsunami um is like yeah I, I don't know maybe it's a function of age i just can't get that excited about you know that particular moment uh for them i don't know it could be laziness maybe i'm just like i don't know like, do you but, think what is it though like because i feel the same way it's like you want to rationalize and say oh i'm just more mature now i have a more sort of nuanced view of the world but I, it might just be that i'm fucking tired yeah and just like it's burning and it's on fire and it's all right and whatever <laughs> um all right so that was the scene that was 2011 that's when and that's when you moved out i still uh, i kind of yeah it was i was still working in the mission for a while i mean i still have a, a desk in the mission that i work from but you know i was there from like 2005 to 2011 or 12 it was like Working there every single day, hanging out there every single night, you know, living, I lived nearby, but like not in the mission, but it was, I didn't, I didn't go anywhere else <laughs> and there was nowhere else to go as far as I was concerned. So yeah, after that, it, it kind of dropped off and like you would, I would maybe go a month or two without visiting the mission and then I would come back and be like, oh man, that parking lot is now a condo building or like, oh, this is crazy. Look at all of these new stores. Look at all these chocolate factories and I don't like the dog bike stores or whatever, whatever they have now. I don't Got to get that dog a bike, man. That's that is new mission uh, economy for you. That's that is true. I mean, you didn't move far. Like where we're sitting right now, you can roll down the hill to the mission. So no, I, I, I it is totally a factor of just being older is like, I want to be close to the mission. I want to feel like I can just pop down there. But like how many times a week do I really just like roll down the hill into the mission and just like grab a beer? Um, between zero and zero. Like, I just... <laughs> it's just not, not happening. Yeah. All right, so so fast forward to Lucky Peach, which I feel like uh, it should do... It, which deserves its own three episodes as a <laughs> piece of geography in the world. Um, but, so Lucky Peach is going through all its stuff, uh, shuts down, and uh, I think that's when you got in the, that, that hot minute with the Chronicle was after Lucky Peach... Um, so, so you figured, all right, you're in the food world. Like this is, this is the thing that's going to happen, but where did it go from there? Well, I, Lucky Peaches shut down or like me leaving a couple of months before Lucky Peach shut down coincided with my daughter being born. Hot tip. Don't leave a steady job one month before your <laughs> child is born. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I, this chaos, man. <laughs> yeah. So I started taking on sort of like anything I could do to, to make ends meet, you know, writing cookbooks and writing, uh, for the Chronicle, um, just leaning hard into that, like freelance writer's life. But like, that's not for me, not because I don't love writing. It's mostly because like, I'm, I'm not somebody who can operate, super well without any structure whatsoever. I'm not somebody who can say, okay, Chris, you, you have nowhere to go today, but you've got a lot of work you could do. 
um, can you just sit down and do it? Like That's the worst. I and, can't do that. And there are people I, I had listened to an interview with some woman who's like, I get up and write for two hours every morning before you. I'm like, what kind it's, of fucking alien are you? It's like, amazing. That's craziness. It's, it's truly amazing. I mean, I know, you know, Priya Krishna, who, who just put out a cookbook, um, she worked for, with us at Lucky Peach for a long time. And um, after she left, she decided, like, I want to be a, a writer. It was Priya Krishna. It was Priya, she was right? On, she was on uh, Carface. I think she was on Lori's, there you go, man. Lori's podcast. See, like, she's legendary with this. Like, she had, like, spreadsheets of, this is how much money I want to make this year. This is how many pieces I need to write in order to accomplish that. And I was like... Kids, Fuck. that is not how it happens. Dude, like, that is a very rare but person. But she has, like, made just like through sheer will and determination, has like mm-hmm. carved this huge piece for herself. And, like, we probably, to be totally honest, like, we probably started like writing freelance at the same time. And I was like out of the game after two months. <laughs> and just she's just like a superstar out. now. You're like, give me, get me a daddy, please. <laughs> yeah, I like, exactly. can't handle this. Exactly. Uh, I'm, so. I'm, I'm in the Chris corner on that. No disrespect <laughs> for you. That's an amazing skill, but that's. Fucking weird. Yeah, it's super um, fucking weird. Uh, all right, so uh, so who's your daddy? What's, what's happening? <laughs> so uh, after a maybe eighteen month hiatus of not talking and and still being in the same room but not talking to each other, I have reunited with Mister Dave Chang. I, uh, I'm loath to call him my daddy, so I'll let <laughs> I'm you. Back, I'm backing you into some <laughs> weird statements here. Uh, well, uh, we need poll quotes for this episode. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean. Do you ever have that fear that you're going to accidentally call somebody in like a position of authority, dad? Like, do you ever have this? Like, I definitely, and his name is Dave. And so like, I sometimes, if I'm really sleepy and I'm on the phone, I'm just like on high alert, just like, don't Uh, let it slip out. Uh, No, Uh, Dave and I and a couple other guys um, have started a media company. Oh my God, that sounds so douchey. Um, I'm about to go give a speech at a marketing convention. So try me, man. Like, I'm I'm fully here for that. Yeah, just some, like, we're just content creators, man. Uh, no, so been working on this most recent season or the next season of Ugly Delicious for Netflix, and then by some crazy confluence of you know the streaming wars and and everybody just sort of clamoring for whatever they can get, we got this deal with Hulu to be producing a whole slew of original food shows for them. I don't know how to make television shows. Like I have no earthly idea. Uh, but you know, that's, that's sort of like the world I have, I've, I'm finding myself in right now is, is writing television treatments or something. I don't know. I think I'm a gaffer. I don't really know. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's not it, but (laughs) no, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, people in television don't know how to make television. That's the first thing you see. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, I will always stand for the writer, you know, the writer knows how to do any of this stuff. (laughs) Like the writer, you know, it doesn't change. So I, I don't, I don't know. I'm not big on that. Like, Oh, it's television. It's like they need writers. I think that that's true. I think that there's, you know, we, we as like writerly people get a lot of guff for our life choices in this sort of like, again, frivolous pursuit. But being able to communicate an idea clearly, being able to sort of like coherently put sentences together is a totally undervalued skill, I think. I have a friend who is now some ludicrous higher up at Apple who did not study anything remotely related to tech or industrial design or anything like that and, and applied to his job originally at Apple with like a, a cover letter that was like, 
I'm a smart guy. I know a little bit about what you're doing, but I can mostly put two sentences together and that will be my skill for you. And they're like, yeah, sure. Fuck hired. And now wow. he like oversees. Now all he's these just people. running shit. And right, like, that's a, I, I don't want his life. It seems really annoying, but, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's, the, that's the flip side. Well, all right. So two writers can sit at microphones and agree that writers <laughs> run shit around here. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, all right, so you say you go zero out of zero days down to the mission, but if if you were uh, to roll down the hill here, what's like what's like two spots that people should go? Whew. I'm gonna get this Christian service journalism <laughs> prime. I'm prime trying to shit. think of what's uh, what's currently happening in the mission that I've been visiting. Um, bar wise, I always still go to the Royal Cuckoo. Yeah, um, which is just sort of like where the mission meets La Lengua, like the sort of like strip of the mission that nobody really wants to call anything else. Um, that's the one up on like 30th, 31st. That that's right. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, they've got live. Was it like a harpsichord or something? I don't know what these instruments are. It's like an organ. Yeah. Uh, just like an organist will play and totally middling, middling cocktails, yeah. but just like nice and dark like you want it to be. Uh, I did. I did roll up there the night I got into town and had a like they just. I just saw this aquavit like from Alborg on the shelf and just had some aquavit. I was like, this is very strange, but it feels right. I don't know. But that is a that is a that's dead on, man. That's the spot. That's a hundred percent like still mission spirit, and that's sort of like a later addition to the mission too. Um, what else is happening in the mission that I like? Uh, I, I still roll through mission Chinese food to to hang out late at night. I. The, like the dirty truth is, I wrote the Mission Chinese Food Cookbook, worked at Mission Street Food, and I can't really eat that food. It like wreaks havoc on my stomach. Like I just it's just like fiery. It just it like, just burns a, like a whole street from Nuevo like, Chinese. Like, the Nuevo Chinese like yeah. goes straight through me. Um, <laughs> and then there's like what is the place next door? There's a place called West Burger, which is fine, uh, but they have a little bar that is just beer and wine and it's maybe the size of a uh, postage stamp and it's open till 4 a.m. And I've never been in there anything short of just completely sideways and upside down, um, which is why I can't think of the fucking name now. And it might not even exist. It might just... No, I think, yeah, or there's a name or maybe it's like uh, some kind of, um, you know, Hogwarts thing where you just, if you reach a certain <laughs> level of inebriation, it'll just appear, you know? I think that's honestly it's what it is like you have to like you have like charge head on through like a, a seemingly solid wall and then like you're inside this I magical you, I tried bar. to do that in the mission once so that works all right chris yang i gotta go talk at a conference yeah man you gotta yeah. save some nuggets for the for the marketeers uh it's a pleasure talking to you uh even better writing or reading your writing so i, I feel like I'm, I'm getting i'm getting chris all over and now you're gonna be on television that's what we got <laughs> get ready all right thanks man the trip from roads and kingdoms is hosted by me nathan thornberg emily marinoff was our producer on this episode happy mukunyazi our consulting producer Alexa Van Sickle is our editor. Music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Chris Yang has a new podcast, everybody, and it's a good one. And it stars Chris and his dad, Dave Chang, 
and also that hard-working Priya Krishna as an excellent recurring guest, Recipe Club. Next Thursday on this particular show, East Africa is calling. And if I've ever had a moment of pinch me, how lucky am I to do this stuff week after week, it was when I landed in Nairobi and hopped on a Boda Boda moto taxi and weaved through traffic into the hills. We are doing five episodes in Nairobi with filmmakers and food obsessives and pop stars, and I hope we will meet you there.